Hello, and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. And today, to quote the fae Stiltskin, magic always comes at a cost, my dear. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today, we are going to be talking a little bit about magic items in general, less the homebrew side of it as in how to balance out a magic item to give to your players and more along the lines of how to incorporate a magic item economy in your game and how to establish a system for your players to craft magic items in your game. While we're going to be referring to magic items throughout the episode, this is something that you can easily also incorporate in any sci-fi game or any modern day game because you're going to have tiers of items in any given game and your regular everyday civilian isn't going to be able to just walk into a store and buy military grade weapons off the shelf. So this is a way to try and talk about how to incorporate a magic item economy in your game in a way that feels realistic. That, for most tabletop games, and D&D is a prime example of this, they really kind of shorthand the overall economy. They'll have pages about how much you want to pay for a flagon of mead or ale, whether or not the dwarf spits in it, how good it is, down to the vintage and quality of the year and the vineyard of the wine you buy in a shop half the time. But then when it comes to like magic items or the cost of labor to make an item or production, they're like, eh, they'll figure it out and just kind of leave it completely bare. Fifth edition is particularly bad with this. I think they are trying to get a bit more away from what we call bookkeeping in fifth edition, which makes the game more accessible, but it does leave some huge gaps that need to be filled in. Right. Fifth edition was a game where they were trying to get away from the number crunching that you ended up having in third and fourth edition, especially given the amount of flack that fourth edition got for its huge modifiers that you ended up getting on things. When you got to higher levels, you ended up having plus 20-something, plus 30-something on your rolls. That was one of the neat things about 1st edition and advanced D&D 2nd edition was, yeah, there was a lot of numbers that was hard to play. I mean, there was a lot to follow, but things like a plus one dagger or a plus one sword was a really big deal. They weren't just handed out like candy. If you got something that gave you a plus one or plus two on your armor or your weapon, that was something definitely to write home about. And so by the time you're rocking level 20, you're rocking a plus five great sword, you know? So that's what you had. And five was kind of the upper limit of most things. Right. And with fifth edition, with the introduction of the bounded accuracy, you really ended up having less of that power creep. Of course, that means that once you get to the higher levels of the game, your party ends up just steamrolling over everything because they have all of the equipment and stuff to be in the upper end of this bounded accuracy scale. So if you have a proficient weapon and a max stat, even with just a mundane weapon, you automatically get a plus 11 on your attack roll once you get to the top tier of gameplay throw a plus two or a plus three on that and suddenly you've got a plus 13 and so you're hitting on everything higher than a five and i get that whenever you reach these higher levels you are a being who has honed their skill to the point where they should be hitting 75 80 85 percent of the time and that said when you're rolling a level 20 character and you're going through the monsters you're killing are dropping a good deal of loot. And that said, going back to the issue of economy and magic, magic items shouldn't be bought at, you know, a penny vendor thing. There shouldn't be 
a little street vendor with a little wooden cart who's selling legendary items out the back. That's not going to happen. And so that's one of the things we want to consider is how and when are you going to encounter your magic items? We've covered that before. But then making an uncommon dagger shouldn't be as easy as making breakfast either. So that brings us into the beginning of our discussion, which is what are the basic guidelines for buying magic items? And I want to preface this by saying these are our opinions. Our opinions aren't going to work at every table. If they don't work at your table, you've done something terribly wrong. And please reconsult the podcast. Please disregard James's last statement. <laughs> because what we are going to suggest probably won't work at every single table. You're going to have some tables where you want to just throw magic items. You want them to rain down like manna from heaven. And then there's going to be other games where you're wanting to play a very low fantasy, very gritty sort of game in which case magic items should be even more rare than what we are suggesting. So tailor the advice that we're giving to your particular scenario. But this is a pretty good baseline for a bog standard high fantasy Dungeons and Dragons world. So whenever you're going about buying magic items, there should probably be a specialized store where there is someone who enchants items. That's what they do. That is their specialty. They take in unenchanted items, they enchant them, and they sell them. But just walking in the door, my personal opinion is, if it's a common magic item, you can probably find it there. Um, All three of them. Well, Xanathar's Guide expanded the list a whole lot. Most of the common magic items have uses that can be replicated with cantrips. That is something that I've picked up just through all of the research that I was doing for this episode, going through and saying, analyze this item's magic effect. What does it do? Yes, this is similar to this cantrip. I didn't find any common magic items that violated this rule. Common magic items never deal damage. That is something that I picked up. They're all helpful little effects. They're all fun little gimmick effects. You know, like the Wand of Smiles that Jester has in Season 2 of Critical Role. Or there's another one in Xanathar's Guide, I think, called the Wand of Scowls, which does the exact opposite. Which, you know, if they fail their charisma save, they scowl for a minute. These are all roleplay kind of, I don't want to say ease of life, quality of life. They're going to make some things a little easier. They're going to make sneaking easier, breaking into something. They're going to kind of help with a skill often. They're not going to swing the game wildly one way or the other. And the way that I would reference putting this stuff together how it would play in my world is that the common magic items are the items that are being made by the apprentices in the shop. These are all practice pieces that they're making to get the hang of the process before they start working with the expensive materials. This is all totally like the type of stuff George and Fred would be making in Harry Potter. They're all kind of gimmicky, gaggy type stuff. Yeah, so definitely this is your lower level now here's how you learn your craft type stuff. Yes. That said, they're not going to be right up front of any given store. Even if you walk into an enchanter shop, they're probably still going to be behind some glass. Right. So just going through some of these items, because I opened up Xanathar's Guide. Armor of Gleaming. This armor never gets dirty. That's prestidigitation. That's using prestidigitation to clean an object. Candle of the Deep. It's the light spell. It's a candle. You light it and the flame can't be extinguished. I think the closest that has anything to an actual combat role would probably be this Clockwork Amulet. 
when you make an attack roll while wearing the amulet, you can forego rolling the d20 to get a 10 on the die. Once you use this property, can't be used again until the next dawn. If you've got enough proficiency in whatever, that's not a bad thing to have. The Dread Helm, it makes your eyes glow red when you wear it. That's minor illusion. I don't know, I like this ear horn of hearing. When held up to your ear, the horn suppresses the effect of the deafened condition on you, allowing you to hear normally. I totally got like box it and they're holding it to his piano or whatever. Maybe my opinion is being colored by all of the more vocal advocacy for disability and disabled representation within D&D and role-playing games in general. But the ear cone, it sounds like Wizards trying to make a mechanical workaround for someone who wants to play a deaf character as opposed to an actual real mechanical how this works without it being, I don't know. I, I, don't I really think, don't know where I'm going with that. I don't think that's quite the case because this is actually, it specifically says for the deafened condition, not for deafness. So it's kind of like if you go your old Final Fantasy, you had soft and hyper and stuff like that for your condition effects. But deafened is a condition that's not used too terribly often. But I know some of your sonic monsters, your bats and things like that can actually cause deafness on your character. Per D&D Beyond, a deafened creature can't hear and automatically fails any ability check that requires hearing. So like if you're next to like a lion and it roars right next to your head, you might pick up the deafened effect for two or three turns. And if you have this little ear horn of hearing, you could pop it up and negate that effect. So I don't see this as an advocacy for larger disability in general, which would be great. I'm definitely all for, as we have mentioned, I have my issues that yay inclusion and representation. I don't think that was intended for that in this case. Given when Xanathar's was published, I think it was published in 2018, which was before this conversation really came to the forefront, really took off. I don't know. I really don't know where I was going with that. Maybe... It was a rabbit trail. It was a nice rabbit trail, but a rabbit trail. It was a rabbit hole that just sort of stopped about three feet down. It was just deep enough to make it look promising, and you get a run and go, and you jump into it, and then you bonk your head. Hey, everybody. Future Ian here. I was editing this and felt that I needed to pop in and clarify a couple of points because I didn't really do a very good job of it while recording. I was actually torn between whether to delete this section on the ear cone or record this little addendum, and I decided to leave it in because James's points needed to stay in. But my statements during this section may sound like I have an issue with disability and inclusiveness in D&D, and I just wanted to take a moment to assure you that that's not the case. I firmly believe that everyone should be able to play the character that they want to play and have a character who looks like them with whatever disabilities they may have, whether it be a visible or an invisible disability. The issue that I have, which I didn't articulate particularly well in this moment, is that the mechanics of the game, specifically in D&D, but also in other games, they want to penalize you for being anything other than a hale and hearty, able-bodied person. Items like the ear cone, while they have a clear mechanical purpose in game, fail to address the underlying issue because they feel like a token concession. So you want to play a deaf character, well, you have to use one hand to hold this item to your ear all the time if you don't want to take penalties for being deaf. That's the issue that I have with these items, and it's an issue that I wouldn't have had even a year ago before all of the disability advocates started pointing out these issues. You know, as an able-bodied person, I never would have thought twice about it. And before I get any comments on it, I'm not planning on doing a disability inclusion homebrew mechanic for D&D, mainly because I know that I would get it wrong. I don't have the life experience to come into this and make something that is truly representative of being deaf or blind or in chronic pain or paralyzed. 
But there are a number of other content creators who are doing this sort of work, and they're doing it really well. For example, Sarah Thompson with her combat wheelchair, which recently made it onto Critical Role. The best that I can do is promote these people and encourage anyone who wants to play to play, because only by taking a seat at the table are you going to be able to change the game. So now I've rambled on enough. Back to your regularly scheduled podcast, already in progress. Really quick, another kind of neat common magic item. Hayward's Handy Spice Pout. So again, these are quality of life things. These aren't going to change the game one way or the other. They're gimmicky things. They're kind of fun by and large. Their use, I think, is going to depend largely on the creativity of the character and how well they roleplay and how quick they can think on their feet. So I would hand these out all over the place as a BM because I kind of like making my characters think on the feet, see what they can do with it. And if they don't do anything with it, then it's not going to shift the game strongly one direction or the other in most cases. So getting back on topic, common items, I would view them as being the items that the apprentices are making to learn their craft. They're just gimmicky little things. Many of them have a very real benefit, but the benefit is very minor. This is going to be like the equivalent of the giant stuffed bear you're going to find at the carnival. So if you have a carnival run through your game and it's kind of scammy where it is possible for the players to win if they figure out some impossible puzzle, but mostly they're not, they would possibly win one of these common magic items. That being said, if you walk into one of these shops, you can probably find most uncommon magic items there as well. That would be the items that the proprietor of the store is going to be making, any of his higher-up assistants, perhaps. These are things that you would be able to purchase from a mage's guild of some sort if you were a member or if you were in good standing with them. Yeah, these are going to be the meat of your items. This is going to be a lot of your loot that drops, by and large. As Ian said, if you walked into an enchanter shop, I mean, I would expect my players to be able to find something along these lines or even not just find, but being able to afford these items anywhere from like probably third level on. Right. And that's a big part of the reason why you're not going to find many items above uncommon quality is because once you get to those higher level items, the market for those items shrinks dramatically because of how expensive they are. So you're going to have your mercenaries and you're going to have your soldiers and you're going to have your guards and you're going to have your adventurers who are all going to be in a certain small amount of coin. The ones that are successful will have more than your average laborer. And so these are the people who are going to be making the investment in these magic items for their work. Once you start getting past uncommon, just the price scale jumping from uncommon to rare item. I think Xanthar's Guide actually does have a cost scale for crafting magic items. I'm pretty sure that there is a pricing scale for recommended costs for different grades of magic items in the DMG. I'm pretty sure that the uncommon magic items are somewhere between 100 and 500 gold, and then it jumps up to like 500 to 2,000 gold for a rare item. And that's a huge jump. Give me a second here and I'll pull up the DMG. If I were a professional, then I would have gone ahead and opened to that page before we got started. Well, again, that you know requires forethought and planning. Well, here it is right here. Haha. It's on page 135 in the DMG. So according to the DMG... The value range for uncommon items is 100 to 500 gold, and for rare items is 500 to 5,000. There was an article that I found, the Angry GM did a whole 
10 part crafting system series that I haven't actually gotten a chance to read through yet. But there was one that he cited, which was called Sane Magic Item Pricing. And they went through and they scaled magic items based on what they did and their rarity and completely adjusted the prices for everything. Now, one place you would likely be able to find rare items was if there's a big military campaign and your kingdom has some sort of like skunk works or anything like that, where they're going to be equipping their champions or the king's personal guard, then that kind of armory is more likely going to have your rare items. Most of your rare and rarer items that you get, you're going to loot. You're going to find them adventuring. You're going to be looting them from people that you defeat. You're going to be finding them in treasure troves. You're not going to be purchasing most of them. It would be possible to find the occasional rare magic item in an enchanter's shop. It would be probably something that was a commission item that they made, and then the person who commissioned it either didn't come pick it up, or they didn't follow through and finish their payments on it. And so the enchanter is stuck with it until they can find somebody to buy it from them. Yeah, that'd be something like the guard captain fell in battle, that kind of thing. Even still, that's going to be a big market hit to hold on to that kind of thing for your shopkeep. It's the same concept as a used car dealership. The longer that car sits on the lot, the more money it costs you. And then you're not going to find very rare and legendary magic items in a shop. You're just not. Unless it's tied into storyline. I mean, yeah, you could maybe find some dusty artifact in the back of this antique store that somebody found and didn't know what it was and couldn't be bothered to take it to a wizard to cast identify on it. And so it's just moldering in a junk pile in the back of this antique shop. That's what we in the business call a plot point. Absolutely. That's definitely a magic item that falls through a hole in the plot and lands in the player's lap. But by and large, the way I would rule is that if you want a magic item that is of rare or rarer quality, you're probably going to have to commission it. You're going to have to find an enchanter who is capable of doing the work and then commissioning them to make the item for you. Right, and that's going to be up to the DM. If you're the DM, that leaves you the option for finding materials, different quest lines you can use for the party. So if the party gets in the town and you need to burn a session or two because someone didn't show up or you just kind of don't know what to do or you're still writing, having them gather some materials for their gear because everybody wants to, you know, level up and and get some new shiny stuff. That's a really good way to kind of, I forgot to write today's session or they killed my big bad guy way quicker than I thought they were going to. And that also helps immerse the players that are like, I want to harvest parts from this thing that we just killed. We just killed a dragon. I want to skin it. Those sorts of people. So it's definitely... We call them hoarders. We call them pragmatic. Because I, for one, I like the concept of being able to harvest parts from the critters that I kill for specialty purposes. Don't just kill something and leave it lay. Use the parts. You killed that displacer beast you better skin it because you're going to make a cloak of displacement out of that. That is reasonable. And again, talking about how D&D specifically seems to lack a bit on the economy, 5th edition really left a lot of gaps. Yeah, you get artisan tools, but the actual crafting, 
they almost leave completely blank. They don't really touch on it at all. Xanathar's Guide actually has sections talking about the bonuses that you can get for having a proficiency with your tools, the sort of things that you can do with your tools, some standard DCs for various actions that you can do with your tools. But even the artisan's tools where you can make things it doesn't give you any guidelines on how to go about making things. And the crafting items section in Xanathar's Guide is a whole page and a half. So you went to the enchanter shop, you're looking for a specific item. It was either way too much or they didn't have it. So you walk out of the store saying, fine, I'm going to create my own Wando parties, this time with hookers and blackjack. And you're going to kind of go from there. And so whenever you're going to commission an item, an enchanter capable of making a very rare or legendary item is probably going to require some special components for the enchantment. And they're probably going to require you to provide the item to be enchanted because they're an enchanter. They're not a blacksmith. They're not an armorer. They're not a jeweler. They don't have the skill set to make the item and then enchant it. They are a professional enchanter. Enchanting is what they do. They don't branch out. And if there anything like most high-end mages, that kind of menial work of actually physically crafting an item would just be far beneath them. They'd probably charge you double just for insulting them. Probably. So the question that follows up out of this, and we've touched on it a little bit, is how can you go about getting magic items without going to a shop and buying them? Obviously, the most common one that you're going to run into is you loot it. You killed the critter and you've dug through its treasure trove. You poked around in the musty corners of the dungeon. You fought off the band of bandits and you're looting the bodies afterwards. That's where you're going to get 90% of your magic items in most D&D campaigns. That said, if you've raided the goblin's lair and you've cracked open his rusty chest of goodies, there generally is a set quality of item that is required before you can go enchant. You can't pick up a rusty dagger and take it to the enchanter and say, hey, look what I found. Give me a plus four on this, baby. Right. And we'll get into that in a little bit. You're getting ahead of me, James. Sorry, I'm all excited. <laughs> yeah, I know you're all excited. Talking about shiny things and magic stuff? Yeah, heaven forbid we talk to the lapidary about shiny things. <laughs> that would just be silly talk. The second thing would be black market or organized crime. You're going to find somebody who has picked up something probably illicitly that they need to offload. So you might be able to find a rare or a very rare item if you know a guy who knows a guy, but that thing is going to be so hot that it leaves blisters when you touch it. I don't know. I think even at this point, black market, pushing a very rare item on a black market, we talked about earlier, you know, in one of our first podcasts, a very rare item is going to be like one of those noble family heirlooms that has a name to it. That coming down through the black market would be considerably, I mean, that would be, I don't know, that's just one in a million. And that would be, uh, I did this just to prove I could. That would be like the robber king, you know, who's a baron robbing something just to prove he can and then sneaking back in and putting it back so no one notices with a calling card type thing. I'm not saying that's going to be a practical thing to go through the black market to get these high rarity magic items. I'm saying not practical, that it's an option. But it is possible. <laughs> Fair enough. It is not an economically feasible option, but it is an option. At that point, once you have enough money to pay someone to go get it, you probably have enough money to just go and offer it to that person to buy it off of. That or just go and kill your own monsters and see what you can find. Now that we've rambled on for a while, the third option is making your own. And like we've been saying 
so far all episode, there's not really been a whole lot of rules in the books saying this is how you go about making your own magic items. In 3rd edition, you had magic item crafting feats. So you had to pick up a certain feat in order to be able to craft items of a certain type. You had that in Advanced D&D, and I think it may have been in 1st edition as well. But I definitely know that was a thing in Advanced D&D, particularly when they use that model for your old games like Baldur's Gate or Neverwinter Nights. And by taking those crafting feats out and instead putting in artisan's tools, they were cutting down the extra bulk of everything that was going on. But now you don't have a system by which to actually go about doing this. So that's Ian's big push this time was what's needed to actually craft things. And I really like that. I've said many times, Wizards has definitely turned a blind eye in this case to the economy. And I really think an economy-based game, even in D&D where the economy is central to the story or the plot, can be a really interesting hook. And I think that's really neat. So this is actually something I was really excited that Ian wanted to bring up because this actually gives a lot of different options so you can tinker and mess with stuff. Since this is something that we're saying, but there aren't established rules for crafting your own magic items, and we're a homebrew podcast, I decided to do the undertaking and making a magic item crafting system. It has taken far longer than I anticipated it would, and... It's still a bit clunky, but I'm getting it to where it's almost usable. And so I was going to talk about that a little bit. This is still our alpha, and it's still better than anything Wizards has given you. Well, it's because Wizards has basically given you nothing. But Don't hey. qualify it, just let the statement stand. Okay, I will let the statement stand. So there are some loose rules in Xanathar's Guide, pages 128, 129. A little bit of bleed over into 130 where they're talking about crafting specifically potions of healing i find it odd that they don't give you anything for any other potions it's just potions of healing i think they were probably letting you use that as a springboard possibly but in my research in setting all of this up i found that there is a series and i've mentioned this already that the angry gm has made i think it's just called crafting a crafting system so there is something else out there and I don't know how my system compares to his system, but here's my system. So for starters, there are two elements to crafting a magic item. You have to craft the base item, which has to be of a certain quality, and you have to enchant it. So until this item is enchanted, it's just a really expensive version of whatever the base item is. For sheer simplicity, I'm not going back to the third edition where you have masterwork items which are non-magical items that give you a plus one, plus two, plus three. This is just, it's really fancy and it's really nice, but a longsword is still a longsword no matter how much platinum wire wrapping you put on it. But that said, there has a certain level of quality so it can take the enchantment. A higher valued longsword makes a lot of sense in this case. You're not going to pull it out of the dead orc and then run along with it. And then this also allowed me to bring in your proficiency with artisan's tools if you wanted to make the item yourself. You'd have to have proficiency with the artisan's tool that would be appropriate for the item. So if you're making metal armor or weapons, you have to have smith's tools. If you're making leather armor or boots or anything like that, you'd have to have proficiency with leather worker's tools. If you're wanting to make an alchemy jug, you have to have proficiency with potter's tools because you're making a pot. You have to have proficiency with weavers or tailor's tools 
to make clothes and cloaks and those sorts of things. So you can make the magic items. You can make part of the magic item. You can either craft the base item yourself and then take it to someone to enchant it, or vice versa. You can commission and purchase a base item of a sufficient quality and then take it and enchant it yourself. Or you can just go the whole lazy route and go to somebody, buy the item, take it to somebody else, have them enchant it. Or you can be absolutely crazy and make and enchant it yourself. Only if you multi-class. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. You would have to have proficiency in all of those tools, though. But most of your items that you're going to be making, you would only really need proficiency with one set of artisan's tools. Again, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but... Let's slow down. Let's craft some flame arrows. Okay. So to start off, you would need to have proficiency with... I don't even know which... I'd call it woodworking tools for fletching. We could. Yeah, woodworking tools would probably be good. Or you could argue for smith's tools for forging arrowheads. Yeah, we could call either one of those and say either or in that case. That would very much be a DM call, but I'd be good with either one or both. And so because this is all based on the rarity of the item itself, we would have to have magic ammunition of some sort. I would say that a 1d6 fire arrow... I would call that an equivalent of plus one ammunition because it is 1d6 fire. So the fire is a special damage type that's only going to affect creatures that are not resistant or immune to fire. We'll just consider that to be an uncommon magic item, just for argument's sake. Since we don't actually have it in the DMG, we're just going to call it uncommon magic item. So the way that I would start this off is for the base item... I went ahead and broke it down a little bit by rarity, what the multiplier for the price is going to be. Arrows ammunition would fall into the other category because I have armor and then weapons and shields and then everything else. And then just a flat price for jewelry based on the value brackets and the tables and the DMG. Just purely for simplicity's sake, they're all set in jello at best. They are subject to change at my whim, at some later date. But, based on what I've got so far, the base price for arrows. 20 arrows cost 1 gold. So a times 5 multiplier for an uncommon magic item would mean that 20 arrows of a quality to be enchanted would cost 5 gold. And so you would end up having, because as I go into a little bit later, a certain quality of materials added to items to increase the value and to allow them to hold enchantments of a certain level. So for an uncommon magic item, the material that you have to have on the item in order to hold an uncommon enchantment would be silver. It starts as copper for common, silver for uncommon, electrum for rare, gold for very rare, platinum for legendary. You can't craft artifacts because artifacts are... Items that have been affected by circumstance. Artifacts are born, not made. So these arrows would probably have some sort of silver wire wrap, maybe. Maybe you're using a fine silver wire to fletch them. Maybe you're using pure silver arrowheads. I don't know. The flavor of it is going to be up to you. But you're going to have to have a certain amount of silver in these arrows in order to have them hold the charge. That is what increases the value, is these rare materials and the time that it takes 
to apply these rare materials and not just have a completely useless item. Because as a base item, it has to be useful before you put the enchantment on it. It's got to be a good vessel. If you like your old horror films or whatever else, whatever you're putting the spell on has to be a proper vessel. You know, whatever that takes, whatever kind of preparation or quality of material or workmanship. As we said before, you're not grabbing just any old sword out of an orc's chest and running back with it and saying, hey, put some Chinese on here. That would definitely be a thing. But there needs to be a base level of this isn't your just everyday arrow. This isn't your everyday sword. It's not your everyday armor that you're going to be enchanted. If you were to just go to a Fletcher and have them make the items, you just tell them, I need a batch of 20 arrows meeting these specifications. It's going to cost you five gold for 20 of them. You're going to take your base value for the item multiply it by the rarity that's what the base item pre-enchantment is going to cost i could totally see like if you were in a larger village or city that if you went to the fletcher that he might have a special bin in the back listed enchantables i'm sure he's dealt with fire arrows or people looking for such before so he would have them where he could go and mark them up or make them relatively quickly especially if it's a large enough city to have an enchanter in it Or if there is a strong presence of magic users. So if there's a wizard school or if there's a bard's college or something of that nature. Some big magical academic establishment. Then you're going to have artisans who are going to have base items that are going to be of a quality to a certain extent. Common and uncommon. Again, going back to walking into the enchanter's shop. They're going to have your common and uncommon base items probably either available for you to walk out the door with or have the expertise to quickly make them for you. And then you could conceivably make your own. And I would actually say that the way that you would make the base item would vary depending on which artisan's tools you used in this particular case. So if you were proficient with smith's tools, you would be making silver arrowheads to put on just regular arrows. And so all of the magic would be contained in the arrowhead. Whereas if you were using woodworker's tools, you would be doing wire wrapping on the arrow itself, you know, for the fletching or even going up along the shaft of the arrow. Almost like if you did a silver dust inlay would actually be a good option too. We could just grind down the silver to a dust and then maybe carve or etch a rune or spell within the shaft and then lay it in that way. Absolutely. And then you could theoretically use jeweler's tools if you were going to use a very fine silver wire to attach the fletching to the arrow. And then the spell would be incorporated into the wrapping for the fletching. Those are all really solid options. You can tell Ian and I may have spent some time crafting some various items. So it's like we can do different things with this. We're both hands-on individuals who make things, so we have a little bit of a perspective on the actual artisan side that some people may not have. So let's just say that we've gone ahead and we've made our arrows. We have our 20 arrows that are worth 5 gold. Now it's time to enchant them. And so you're going to... Actually, no, I'm getting ahead of myself again. So the way that I have it set up is if you're going to make them yourself or if you're going to commission them to be made, they're going to take a certain amount of time. And the amount of time it's going to take increases depending on the rarity of the item that you're trying to make. So it's going to take a lot longer for them to craft a base item for a legendary enchantment than it is for them to craft a base item for a common enchantment. 
And this is not just how long it takes to make the item. This is how long it takes to grind down your silver to make your silver dust for your inlays. It's how long it takes you to carve 20 arrow shafts to get them ready to inlay silver dust into. If you read the old Drift series, I for the life of me can't remember the dwarf's name, but he winds up becoming the king of the Mithril Hall at some point. But there's a point where he's basically approached by Morden or he gets the muse. I forget how they phrase it exactly, but the muse hits him and he's getting ready and he winds up crafting. It winds up being like a plus five battle hammer or something that he gives to his son. But the whole thing is that when he goes, he gets really pensive and he withdraws from society and he disappears for like three weeks or a month or something like that. And everybody's like wondering what's going on because he's not coming out. He's not drinking while he is going and planning in preparation to craft this hammer that he's getting ready to do. And in the process, he's got to do certain rituals for Morden. He's got to prepare things. He's got to get the metal ready. He's got to get the diamond dust ready. So it goes through all these various steps that he has to go through. Now, granted, this wound up being what would be considered a legendary item at the time. But still, that kind of goes through where you have to plan, you have to plot. So this would definitely be something that you would probably do over several long rests. Or if you're playing Adventure League, something you'd be doing during your downtime. Right. And so the way that I ended up going about it, because the guidelines that they gave in Xanathar's just seemed insanely overkill. According to Xanathar's, it takes one week to make a common item, two weeks to make an uncommon item. 10 weeks to make a rare item, 25 weeks to make a very rare item, and 50 weeks to make a legendary item. It takes you a year to make a legendary item. Focus and working, not a year of, I'm adventuring 18 hours a day and I'm going to rest for four. Oh, hey, look, yeah, the these, year, are, I've got an item. these are work weeks, is what it specifically says, work weeks. So it takes 50 work weeks to make a legendary item. Now, granted, this is a system where you are taking raw materials at the start and you're ending with a magic item at the end this isn't a two-part system like i've got where it's a base item and then an enchantment but even still i just think that that's too much time now granted there are going to be some times whenever you're going to have a longer crafting window to make it realistic but if you're making a sword it can be a legendary sword it doesn't take 50 work weeks to make a legendary sword it doesn't take 50 weeks working 40 hours a week to make a legendary sword. Depends how good at magic you are. If you're of a skill level to make a weapon that is legendary, it's not going to take you 50 weeks to make this. Right. That probably is a bit much. That being said, you're not sitting there cranking out a legendary sword that's going to earn you 50,000 gold pieces a year either. Well, no. Because that would be wonky. Well, I mean, you're not going to be making these items for sale. Though I wonder how that, as an aside now, I'm just really curious, like, I wonder how much an artificer would make if they were like in a capital city and they made uncommon, or not uncommon, but, but very rare items as that was their bread and butter, or they were hired by the crown to do such, you know, the value cost of that. I wonder what their yearly wages would be versus adventuring. That's if we're going by the guidelines for crafting magic items in Xanathar's Guide, they would only be able to make two per year, and their cost to make them would be 40,000 gold for the two items. 80,000 gold a year. No, it'd be 20,000 gold each, so 40,000 gold for the two items. 40,000 gold, okay, yeah, I was doubling my double. Okay, yeah, yeah that's less special. 
And I have it set up in my system where the quality of the item that you can craft for the base item is tied directly to your proficiency bonus. So if you are proficient with, let's just say, for argument's sake, we're making a longsword. So you would have to be proficient with smith stools. With a plus two proficiency bonus, you'd be able to make common. Plus three is uncommon. Plus four is rare. Plus five is very rare. Plus six is legendary. There's no crafting role. Either you have the requisite proficiency to make this item or you don't. I was going to say, I know you probably aren't going to like that because there's no chuck and dice at the table. I like chuck and dice at the table and more so I like invoking fate. But if you're using your downtime for this, if you're making an item well enough to be able to hold an enchantment, you know what you're doing. You're not going to be flubbing things too terribly often. I mean, even on my best day, I still screw up items every now and again, but I'm not making magic items either, so there's that. But it's something that if you're able to do that on a level, that would be, you'd be able to put in any store and sell, because again, this is definitely a superior quality item to hold an enchantment. You're going to know what you're doing. You've got most of your kinks worked out. You've got your methodology down. So there's no real need to roll out a table in this case. So yeah, I'm, I'm okay with not rolling on this one. And then the amount of time that it would take to craft the base item would be 40 hours per quality rank. So 40 hours for common, 80 hours for uncommon, 120 for rare, 160 for very rare, 200 for legendary. These are working hours. I like that. So, I mean, if you're carrying your stuff with you, you can break down and use your long rests. If you have downtime, if you're doing something like Adventure League or something like that, or your DM just gives you you're here at this town and the rest of the party is running around talking and learning and stuff. You can just, you know, hook up with a blacksmith or whatever and start maybe work on your item and in exchange you do some work for him or something like that. Yeah, that's all perfectly reasonable ways to do that. And I also have it set up to where you can do two hours worth of work per hour that you actually spend working if you're working in a dedicated workshop that's appropriate for your crafting skill. I love that rule. So if you walk into an actual designated smithy and you're making this sword, it's going to take you half as much time because you have a proper forge set up, you have proper anvils and proper hammers, and the whole layout is set up specifically for making metal objects. I really like that from a craftsperson standpoint or an artist standpoint for those that listen that do art. There is nothing worse than trying to do something in an area that you're not used to outside of your workshop, outside of your art area. Or if someone's come in and moved all your supplies or tools, that's going to slow you down so much. And that makes me want to pull my hair out just like, Yeah, absolutely. You don't touch an artist's tools. Just flat out you don't because they have them set up where they want, the way they want. And if they can't find it because they put it down somewhere, that's their problem. If you can't relate to those two things, because again, not everyone does a workshop or does art, though I'm imagining a lot of you do, think of like if you walk into someone else's kitchen and you're just going to cook breakfast, but you don't know where the plates are or you don't know this versus your kitchen. So again, it's that level comfort. It's things are being what they're supposed to be. It's you have stuff there reliable for you. So yeah, that is an absolutely beautiful rule. I love that. I fully support that caveat. And so for these fire arrows that we're making... It's going to take 80 hours to make 20 arrows. So it's going to take the 80 hours to make the batch because it's per unit. And because the listing in the player's handbook for arrows is per unit of 20, the rules are for per unit of 20 arrows that we're making. And then let's just say, for argument's sake, we're using our smith's tools to make these. 
So if you are able to have access to a proper Smith's workshop, then you would be able to do this in half the time, presumably. You'd be able to do this in 40 hours of total work. And you can break this up however you need to. So if you have one day that you can go in and work, and you work for 10 hours in your workshop, that's 20 hours towards your 80 hours total. And then you can go adventuring for three weeks, and then you come back, you haven't lost any of your progress. You just pick back up where you were and start on hour 21. That sounds and feels reasonable. It's 80 hours because we're calling these an uncommon item versus a common item, correct? Correct. Okay, so a common item would take... 40 hours. Uh, 20 hours in a workshop. So now we have our arrows that are 5 gold for 20 quality that we have made and they are ready for enchanting. All right, let's do it. In order to place an enchantment onto an item, you either have to have proficiency with the arcana skill or be able to cast spells as a ritual. Again, both of those make perfect sense. So you either have to know how magic works from an academic standpoint and be able to incorporate the magic, or you have to have the ability of how to utilize magic in a very slow and methodical way. We call that theoretical or practical knowledge. And in order to place an enchantment, you have to cast a spell and expend a spell slot of at least a certain level. Common items require at least a first level slot, uncommon third, rare fifth, very rare seventh, legendary ninth. Again, that seems reasonable. I'm okay with all of that. And I should add, the person who is acting as the anchor, so the person who has the arcana skill or the ability to cast ritual spells. The anchor has to also have the same requisite proficiency bonus. So, plus two for common, plus three for uncommon, four for rare, five for very rare, six for legendary, in order to perform their part of this whole thing. And the person who is acting as the anchor doesn't necessarily have to be the person casting the spell. They can have someone else who has the spell work with them, cast the spell, and they just manipulate it and weave it into the item. I haven't figured out any sort of... That sounds a little clunky right now. I would almost make it where the person doing the enchanting does have to cast a spell. The option would be you might have enchanters that sell a scroll of enchantment that you could purchase, or even, depending on the party, maybe you could hand the item off and have your dedicated spellcaster do the enchanting for you after you've crafted, perhaps? And granted, the people who have access to all of these spells are probably going to either be proficient with Arcana or have the ability to cast ritual spells. Your clerics, wizards, and druids can all baseline cast ritual spells. And your bards as well, most likely. I don't think that bards get ritual spells baseline. I think they have to pick up the ritual caster feed to do it. I think bards and sorcerers both have to pick up ritual caster. But I think Pact of the Tome warlocks have the ability to cast ritual spells as well. Yes, they do. But their spell list is going to be very diminished compared to, say, a wizard or a cleric. As our theoretical, we're saying that the person making these arrows is a forge domain cleric. So they have proficiency with smith's tools, so they're able to craft the arrows themselves. And then they have the ability to cast ritual spells so they can enchant the arrows themselves. Now, because these are an uncommon magic item, you have to use a third level spell slot whenever you create the item. 
So you would go into your spell list and you would find a spell that deals fire damage that you can cast in a third level spell slot. So you can use a lower level spell and upcast it at third level. Or you can use a third level spell cast normally. I think that a Forge Domain Cleric would have access to Flaming Sphere and Fireball both. They would be able to use a casting of Fireball to enchant these arrows. So you would have to have the material components for the spell. They are consumed if the spell consumes them. I haven't figured out if there's going to be any other material components necessary to undertake this enchantment. Kind of want there to be, based on the quality of the item, some sort of item that would act as a focus, maybe drawing some sort of a magic circle with crushed gemstone or some such. Yeah, I would use either crushed gemstone and or maybe a certain amount of adamantine. Or not adamantine, but mithril. Or, you know, drawing from the Dresden Files, you know, having an inlaid magic circle made of a pure metal. And that could be metal of the same quality that is required for incorporation into the base item for the level of enchantment. So if you're wanting to make a rare magic item, the magic circle you're working with has to be inlaid with Electrum. Yeah, that seems really reasonable. I'm trying to think how you'd do that in travel at the same time, though. Well, the enchantment part does not lend itself to travel. Because once you start it, you can't stop it. And I guess you'd be consuming your circle or whatever you inlaid your circle with. Not necessarily. Uh, That's what I'm saying, again, where you're invoking just in this case, he had that inlaid into his lab at his basement. Yes. So I'm trying to figure out how that would happen. I would say that would be an option, or you could make a ring of standing stones that have to be gemstones of a certain quality and do it that way as well. And you would probably be able to flavor it however you wanted. The standing stones would be more for a druid doing this sort of thing, as opposed to a magic circle being more of a wizard way of doing it. I could see you could have crystals at set point, again, magic stone being arcane gems or whatever, instead of candles in your enchanting circle or however you wish to do that. But yeah, no, that becomes a DM call at that point. But I think some sort of cost for the enchanting or extra material as well can fit. Yeah, and that's something that I haven't fleshed out yet. That's something that I'm still working on. So we've got our uncommon item. Let's just say we're just going to use fireball as our fire magic source for the enchantment. Being an uncommon item, it requires a third level spell slot to enchant these items. So we're going to use a third level spell slot and fireball and craft the magic into these items. As I said, once it starts, you can't stop it. If you stop it, you lose all of your magic stuff that you've started off with and you have to start over from scratch. It doesn't destroy the item, but the enchantment fizzles and you have to completely start the enchantment again from scratch. So go tell the bard to sing over there. (laughs) And it's going to take two hours plus one hour per level of rarity. So three hours for a common, four hours for an uncommon, up through seven hours for a legendary. And this is per spell effect. So if you have an item that has four spell effects on it, you're going to have to do this four times, once with each spell effect. You can stop and take a break between them, But once you start one spell effect, you have to keep going. And once a spell effect is on the item, it doesn't come off if your progress gets interrupted. I would also want to put a cap on how many spell effects you can put on item per rarity of the item, I guess you'd say. Well, this whole system is specifically to craft the magic items that 
are published by wizards. And there are some things like you're not going to be able to make a wand of wonder. You're not going to be able to make anything that gives you wishes. You can't make a luck blade. You can't make a ring of wishes. You can't make a ring of genie summoning. You can't do that. (laughs) We have rules, folks. There are rules. So we've crafted these fire arrows at a cost of five gold for the arrows or for the materials, one gold for the raw material. So that puts us at a total of six gold for just raw materials. Probably, yeah. Okay, so six gold total for raw materials for enchanting and the actual physical thing. 80 hours of work plus another four hours of enchanting time? Plus another four hours of enchanting time. Okay. Versus how much per the table would a uncommon magical item sell for? About 100 gold, is that correct? So here, according to Xanathar's, it's calling the cost for crafting it 200 gold. The price in the DMG for... A magic item of uncommon quality would be between 100 and 500 gold. Okay, so 80 hours of work plus 5 gold, or 84 hours of work. So call it 85 hours of work. So you have two full work weeks in exchange for, what do we say again, price? 100 to 500 gold. So let's call them 100 gold. Call them 100 gold because they're arrows. They're not going to be terribly expensive. Right, so that sounds about right. Because if you look like even in the player's handbook where you can reference the few things of economy that you do have. You could live an aristocratic lifestyle, so basically you'd live like a rock star, for 10 gold pieces a day. You'd be comfortable at two. So you got to think 80 hours, so basically you've got two full work weeks in there, plus your materials, in exchange for 100 gold. So I think that works out about right. That seems reasonable. Yeah, uh, your time is going to be worth roughly one gold an hour on this. Yeah, that actually works out about right. So, I mean, if you wanted to work an 80-hour work week again, or a 40-hour work week, you're 40 gold. So, if you were set enchanter in the town, you could put out two of these a week as the time gave you. You'd be bringing in 200 gold pieces a week. You and your family could be living fairly comfortably, which seems right for an arcane person who would enchant. So, yeah, again, this feels balanced with what little economy Wizards has given us. This seems like it ties in fairly well. Overall, your profit margin would be about... 10 gold pieces a week if you negated a gold piece per work hour. So yeah, I like that. Well done on the math on your end. Very well done. Some of the math working out is completely accidental, I will admit. Statement stance. I like it. And then you're going to have some materials that have an innate property. So specifically talking about mithril and adamantine. They are listed as magical armors, but there's not actually any enchantment on them. The properties are coming from the material. So with those specific items, you can stop once you reach the end of the crafting stage because there's not an enchantment to put on them. Adamantine armor makes you immune to critical hits. It turns all critical hits into basic hits. That's a nice thing to have. Adamantine weapons deal automatic critical damage to structures and objects. Again, that sounds reasonable. I believe Mithril used to be, and I can't remember if it still is or not, but Mithril was kind of like an anti-magic No, Mithril can only be applied to medium and heavy armor. And what Mithril does is it removes the strength requirement and disadvantage on stealth checks from armor. I'm thinking of an older edition then where Mithril used to be a thing. In third edition, what it would do is it would bump an armor type down one weight class. So you could get Mithril plate armor and it would count as medium armor instead of heavy armor. So a fun bit of trivia, that Mithril's real-life equivalent is actually titanium. 
So that's one of those. And if you've ever gotten to play with titanium, that stuff's weird. It's insanely light and very, very tough. And it's really weird to try and weld. It requires a lot of very specialized equipment to weld. I don't even want to think about that. You have to use pure helium for your shielding gas. You can only do it with TIG welding. And you have to have a back purge. So you have to have a shroud on the underside filled with helium to purge out all of the oxygen. And you have to have an oversized shroud attached to your welding torch to keep your shielding gas on the weld after you've welded it as it's cooling down. Because if you expose it to air while it's still cooling down, it will oxidize and it will compromise the integrity of the weld. That's crazy. Yeah, titanium's some really, really weird stuff. So it fits that mithril's some really, really weird stuff. Yeah, so... In case you guys didn't know before, now you know that you're on a podcast with a lapidary and a welder. So we have all sorts of random tidbits of knowledge for you. But yeah, and then I went through and tried to lay out some item costs for various different crafting materials, common crafting materials, and the specialized materials for the magical stuff and for jewelry and that sort of thing. And a lot of that was me spitballing. I tried to go through and compare the price of the material to the price of items listed in the player's handbook and extrapolate a per pound price for a lot of these items. I got way too many to go into in detail, but one that James brought up and that I had to talk through with him a little bit was high carbon steel. I have two grades of steel. You have mild steel, which is good for armor, and you have high carbon steel, which is good for weapons because it's a harder steel. It holds an edge better. And I have it as five silver a pound for high carbon steel. And I was going through, and I based that off of the cost of a dagger because a dagger weighs one pound and costs two gold and so i went with 25 percent of the cost of that dagger would be the cost of the raw material to make that dagger so that was my mathematical logic for that yeah and that was a good thing and i had asked him about the difference because he does have brass and bronze costing at this point one gold piece per ingot and he was totally correct and i completely blanked you know my brain was stuck in fantasy land where iron costs more than copper versus an actual real-world thing where scrap price for copper is $2 a pound versus like $0.05 cents a pound for iron. So yeah. again, that was a perfect call on that one. And again, I apologize. My brain completely blanked and I was stuck in fantasy land for that moment. <laughs> iron is far more common than copper in most settings in the real world. And when you couple that with the fact that governments are going to be taking copper to make currency, you're not going to find copper for cheaper than iron anywhere. Absolutely not. And that was a very well-made point. And so I like how you tied the economy to price sets that were already in the book, which is a great way to do it. One thing I try to do, again, if you ever want to tinker with an economy within the game, because it's something I do like to do, is I'll try to take something analogous real world. So again, the one thing wizard they've got down to a T is the price of alcohol. And so you can always relate price of alcohol to modern price and then try to balance your prices for various things off of that, too. There are several ways to do things like that. But the system that Ian has been tinkering with, I am really happy with. Like I said, it's come out really well. and I'm I'm actually quite impressed. And I'm intending on keeping on working on it. What I'm going to be putting out on Friday is going to be the working document. We're recording this a couple of weeks before this episode of the podcast goes out, so I'll have a couple of extra weeks to work on it. And I'm hoping eventually to 
come up with a crafting process for potions a crafting process for staves and wands so things that have charges that you can cast spells through because i feel like it would be similar to the process for creating just simple magic weapons but it would be different in a way because you're not having a passive magical effect on the item you're having an active magic effect that you activate i think for that you need to as part of the material needs to be a spell scroll and that would be another thing is dumbing down spell scrolls because spell yeah. scrolls according to xanathar's guide are insane it takes i think it was 48 weeks and something like 250,000 gold to make a ninth level spell scroll and that's the wizards being nice. I know in second edition, if you actually wanted to make a magical item or a scroll or a potion, it actually cost you XP. Yes. You wouldn't drop levels, but you'd be three quarters of the way to the next level and then craft a bunch of stuff and be back to square one. You could easily, with one or two magic items, lose all of your progress towards a new level. You could be level 18 and have 90% of your experience points that you need to hit 19, craft two magic items, and then you're back to zero. At level yeah, 18. That was, that was rough. So I think that's going to do it for today. I think I've talked enough about this, and I hope to have something a little more concrete and a little more streamlined by the time this goes out. I think we've cut some really good ground here. I would definitely want to come back, and then, again, maybe as we work down how we plan to do the staves and wands and perhaps scrolls later that we can come back and revisit this because I think this is something that is really glaring a huge hole that Wizards left. And so I like that we're kind of stepping into the breach and filling the gap for a bit. And a big part of me doing this is in my game, I have an artificer and I wanted to have a list that I can just show him and say, here, these are the things that you can make and this is how you make them. So thank you everybody for joining us today. Our Twitter is at UCT Homebrew. Uh, you can find us at Undercommon Taste on Facebook and Instagram. Starting at the first of the year, I started doing RPG scenario prompts on our Twitter account. Um, my parents got me a Shakespearean Insults page-a-day calendar. And as a sort of incentive to actually use my page-a-day calendar, because I don't typically do page-a-day calendars, I've started posting the insult of the day and then a short RP prompt inspired by the insult that I have gotten for that day. So weekends are two for one on the page. So you're not getting anything on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, you'll be getting a new prompt every single day. So go ahead and follow us on Twitter so you can catch all of those. If you have a story that you want to share with us that comes off of one of those prompts, go ahead and drop us an email, undercommontaste at gmail.com. Let us know what it is. We would love to hear what you guys are coming up with off of this. Absolutely. The scenarios Ian's come up with have been really fun so far. Also, you can find our podcasts wherever you find podcasts. We're a bit everywhere now. Feel free to uh, subscribe and comment. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste, or on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. 
If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Again, thank you for listening and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.